I think we can. I think we're all thankful uh, that um, we have police and we have fire uh, department. We have medical personnel that are trained for crises. I think. I think we appreciate that in people that 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 they're trained and they're able to handle crises. They go through all kinds of uh, tests and and qualifications to know that they can handle these difficult situations. They don't always know exactly what's going to happen, but they're preparing for many different contingencies. And I think we're thankful for that, that, that there are people that are able to do that. But when it comes to us personally regarding the crises or the unexpected issues that we may be facing, we're not always so well trained. We don't think as much about it. We don't consider how will I handle if... And we don't give a lot of forethought to what is life going to be like if this happens. And uh, I would ask you, you know, to just, as you begin to hopefully kind of reveal your heart to yourself a little bit, how well do you handle crises? How prepared are you? What's the purpose of them? Do, do, they, do they stimulate anger towards God or, or, or do they move you to consider God? You know, in our passage today in Isaiah 7, it's going to be a kind of a complicated passage because of the geopolitical situation that has to be unpacked. Uh, but, but what we're going to see is that crises are very instrumental for us to reveal to us, not to God. God knows. God needs for us to know what he knows. So, so it kind of reveals the character of our faith to us. That's the first thing. But then we're going to see the graciousness of God in, in not simply revealing where we are in life, by virtue of the crises, but it shows how God uses crises to actually build faith in us, that that God is going to actually develop faith in us through the crises. And then then last, we're going to kind of see this idea, even when we falter, even when he's developing us, even, even when he's challenging us in these crises, he then comes along and rescues us in faith. He has to rescue us. So, so turn with me, if you will, to, um, to Isaiah 7. We'll read verses 1 all the way to 17. And, and I, I want to remind you that the people of God in both Old and New Testament are always to be defined by people of faith. In other words, we are marked by our faith, that we are a people that, that are not just outwardly people of God, but inwardly. In other words, that circumcision on the outside is to be married to a circumcision of the heart. That, that our lives are lived by faith. And, and this is going to show, I think this text will encourage you, that crises are instrumental to reveal to us, report card, report card almost, where we are in the faith. So let's read it together. A lot of names that you're going to be unfamiliar with, and I'll try to explain them as we go along. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel. So there's two kings, two lands, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So they had attacked uh, individually at different times, that is, Jerusalem. When the house of David, or Jerusalem, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is the same as the king of Israel, Just another name. Just real quick, let me stop. 200 years before this point, Solomon engaged in idolatry. The 12 kingdoms of Israel, 10 were ripped apart from them. And that became the northern kingdom. It's called Samaria. It's called Israel. It's called Ephraim. 
So all those names are those 10 kings or those 10 tribes that went to the north and had separated themselves from the people of God. So let me pick it up in verse 2. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to them, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, so let me me just orient you to where we are in Isaiah. We've seen five chapters of failure of people in faith, right? The introduction to the book of Isaiah is the first five chapters, and we just see example after example of failure. They're not walking as people of faith. We're supposed to be people of faith, believing in God's goodness in our lives, and we're not walking that way. They weren't at all. In fact, when you get to the end of chapter 5, which will be handled next week, uh, God likens Israel to a vineyard. This vineyard was planted in fertile soil. It should have produced a a large crop of faith, that they would be the people of God, displaying the glory of God through their faith, but they didn't. They were a busted-down vineyard. In fact, when you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, you're almost led to think, is there any hope? I mean, is anybody going to get it right? Is anybody going to live by faith? Well, then chapter 6 hit, right? And so Isaiah was taken up to the throne room. And what did, he, what did he see? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. I mean, burning ones are just surrounding him. And what do we hear those words? Remember, we heard words of hope at the end of chapter 6. That, that, that Israel, likened to a tree, will be cut down and the stump burned. But there's a shoot that comes out. In other words, a remnant, a people. God is yet faithful to maintain his people. And so there's hope given to us. Okay, now we land in chapter 7, and where we, we meet Ahaz. Ahaz is the grandson of Uzziah, the grandson. This is years beyond, this is 734 B.C. 
And Ahaz is now in a great crisis, a national crisis. And Isaiah has been sent to him to engender faith. But let me explain this crisis. It's in verses 1 and 2. The crisis is this. So he is king of Jerusalem, of Judah. You have Assyria. Assyria is to the east. It's a huge country. It's a powerhouse. It's, it's got great military machinery. They're gobbling up countries. It is a superpower. They are coming and moving west. They're consuming nations in their way. Now think about this. You have two countries to the north of Jerusalem. You have Syria and you have Samaria. And I explain those. They are in league with each other against Assyria. Now these two countries, this Rezin of Syria and the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, they want, they want Ahaz to join in the coalition. So, hey, three is better than two in battle. They want Ahaz to join with them against this invading army. Well, Ahaz doesn't want to join. So then they get in league, these two northern countries, join forces, and now they're going to attack Ahaz and Jerusalem. They want to destroy Ahaz, remove him, and install that puppet king, Tabil. Now, why? Well, because they want more forces against the Assyrian force. Now, Ahaz is terrified. Let me explain why. You know, we, we know that war is challenging. I mean, anybody that comes back from war, is a, you have a different slant. They've seen things that they've never, nobody's seen before. When you think of war in this day, though, I, I want to just remind you of the all war is hell. This kind of war was all hand-to-hand combat with swords, spears, arrows. There was much carnage. There was slow death. When an invading army would come in, women would be raped. Children would be sent into slavery. People would be deported. All the crops for that season would be destroyed. No food. There's no stores. You can't go get food now because the grocery store is out. If you were in a city and you were in this walled city, they would surround it and build siege works up the wall, and there would be starvation, and the atrocities were committed where parents were eating young. It was just a horrible scene. And so when you see this Assyrian monster coming west, consuming nations in its path, you would be shaking like the wind. It was a crisis, a, a, a crisis that would leave people just shaking. He's at the point of the spear. What's he going to do? Is he going to trust in God's provision and protection and promises that you are my people and I will care for you? Or are you going to turn to trust in other things, other men, other machinery? I mean, if you draw a quick, if we just stop for a minute, every generation knows crises. We know crises now. I mean, there's crises in the Middle East. There's, there's crises in this global kind of resurgence of, of militant Islam. You have not just international crises, you have national crises. I mean, we still have a, a debt that is, that is extremely high and burdensome. You have this cultural divide in our country that is widening, not just international, not just national. I mean, there is a lot of personal crises. I know many of you are walking through in terms of perhaps your marriage, difficulty at work, children, parents. I mean, there, there's crises at every level. And, and the point of these crises, if we're going to steward our crises well, is to they kind of wake us up. A crisis is valuable for you, 
because it strips the veneer of what life's like. It wakes you up. It, it, it reveals to you the absolute impotence of humanity. It also shows you where your faith is. It shows you in what are you trusting? Are you trusting in the things of men or are you trusting in God? It, it begins to reveal to you, it, you know, we can tend to be very easily deceived of our own spiritual prowess. And we think, no, I'm really, I'm a strong believer. I have a good head of knowledge of the things of God, and I'm a strong believer. But, but these crises kind of reveal to us, what do we really believe? So if you're standing, you've been feeling sick for about three months, and you're sitting across the seat from the doctor, and he looks at you and he says, there's nothing else I can do for you. What do you do? What do you trust? Where do you go? Do you find yourself shifting to God and say, you know what? He's appointed days for me. Nobody is going to determine my days. Only God will. Or do you then begin to shift and nervous and turn to all the other opportunities that might save you, that you begin to put your hope in man or in medical technology or in whatever? Where are you going to be? That's the point of crises. We want to steward our crises well. We don't want to just look to escape. We want to look first in and say, God, what are you revealing? So that's what's happening. This verses 1 and 2 set the context. It's a dangerous context. They're shaking. Okay, so the revelation's been made. Ahaz is without faith. Okay, that's all right. God is great. He's faithful and he's kind. Look at what he does in verses 3 and 4. He sends Ahaz out to this aqueduct or this water source. Now, what's Ahaz doing out there? Well, Ahaz is probably either securing a water source so it doesn't fall into the hands of an enemy, or he's making provisions for an imminent attack. But he's out there, and it's a point of crisis for him. And so what does God do? Well, God sends Isaiah to meet him and speak to him. Isaiah is going for no other reason than to call Ahaz to faith, to believe, to rest. That's what he says in verse 4. When I read it, he says this. He says, say to him, be careful, be calm. Don't be afraid. Don't be faint of heart. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, God, as he sits in glory, looks at Ephraim and Syria and says, they're just a bunch of burned out cigarette butts. They've got nothing. You don't need to fear. You can rest. You can rest before me. Isaiah is calling him to believe in God. He's saying, believe in God. Don't trust men. Don't go to the side of men. Go to the side of God. And then he makes this promise. Look what he says. Next verse, he says, it will not take place. It will not happen. So the God of the universe has drawn a line in the sand, and he said, it's not going to happen. You can believe me. You don't have to fear it anymore. God has determined where these kings will go, and it won't be in Jerusalem. So right there, you can just see, if you could just hope for Ahaz, that he would leap into faith and say, God, praise God. God said it won't happen. It isn't going to happen. I don't need to worry about it anymore. In fact, God did even more. He had Isaiah bring his son. You know, this son. It, why, why would God have Isaiah bring this boy? Well, the boy's name means a remnant will return. A remnant. Okay, I talked about that in chapter 6. This idea that God is preserving a people for his own name and for his own glory and for their joy. And in Bringing this boy is saying to Ahaz, you have verbally heard from God. Now you're visually seeing from God. God is confirming, Ahaz, there is a remnant that will be saved amidst all this carnage, and I'm asking you to join the remnant. Join the remnant. By faith, follow God. By faith, believe in his promises. 
In fact, he ends it up in verse in verse nine. He says, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. There's kind of a warning going on here. He's warning Ahaz, if you're not firm, if you're not secure, you're going to be insecure. You're going to fall. So that's the, that's kind of the call to faith. Now, what does Ahaz, what does he do? Well, he, he doesn't believe. He chooses not to align himself with God. And you see that in verse 10. Look in verse 10. He says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. I mean, just for a minute, would you stop with me and look at the graciousness of God? He says to Ahaz, you can ask me for anything. Here's a blank check to prove myself to you, to prove my faithfulness. You can go to the depths of hell itself. You can go to the heights of heaven. Whatever you want to ask, you ask. This is grace, that God is pursuing Ahaz a second time, and he's giving such an offer. What an offer. What does Ahaz, what does he do? Well, Well, don't be fooled, please, in verse 12 when he says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 here. I don't want you thinking there's any sort of humility or spirituality with this. It's totally false humility. It's, it's superficial spirituality. He doesn't want to ask God. He doesn't want to follow God. If you read in Second Kings, he's already made a covenant with the king of Assyria to become his servant. He says, I will become your servant. Here is the king that is following in the line of King David, He was to be really the vice regent, the display of the faithfulness of God, and he's asking to serve a pagan king. This is a a black day. This is a black day. I mean, that a servant of God would commit himself and trust in the machinery of men. In fact, he says in uh, Kings, he is called the son of Pul. Son of Pul was the Assyrian commander. So you see Ahaz, before such a gracious offer of God, totally go the way of Assyria. And that's why Isaiah comes back to him. And he says to him, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Notice in verse 10, he says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. But then notice in verse 13, that you may weary my God. He's now cut out. Ahaz is now finished. God is finished with Ahaz. Ahaz has passed his point. There's no return. He is cut off from the people of God. That ought to scare you. He has chosen to not believe. So as you face crises, you're going to be put in this place of how, what am I going to go to? What am I going to trust in? The whole passage is about are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? You know, in crises, oftentimes we turn to ourselves. You know, I, I, there are many times, particularly when nonbelievers hear the word they have cancer, what they do is they say, you know, I'm going to fight this thing. As if this some pep-up rally is going to change the environment. I, my coach used to do that before we took the football field. Uh, before a team we knew we'd be slaughtered by, and he'd pump us up, and we knew we're getting all excited. We're going to go out and get crushed for the next 60 minutes. Is it just some pump-up? People turn to themselves. You get in a crisis at work, and, and you may be tempted to turn to, well, maybe I won't say this, and Maybe I'll fabricate this. Maybe I'll exaggerate this. Or you're in a position of of marriage, well, and and some struggle comes into marriage. You have a crisis. Well, I better not say anything that's going to exacerbate the problem. We turn to ourselves and our own own scheming about what we're going to do to get out of the crisis. Or others, we turn to 
others. We just move to the government or we move to friends or we look to a medical community. I mean, we put this tremendous pressure on our government to solve our problems. They can't do it. You saw, and I've I've told you this before, after the Naval Yard shooting, what's the first thing? Well, we've got to screen these people better. Guess what? You can screen them better. You're still going to have problems. We live in a broken, fallen world. Is screening isn't going to do it. We turn to ourselves. What this passage is saying, don't turn to yourself. Don't turn to others. I, I understand that to believe in God is difficult. You don't see him. You don't hear him. You're not interacting with them. You do many things during the day of your own power. You stare at the car, you feed yourself, you go to bed, you do all these things as if I'm, I'm totally the master of my own destiny. And, and I know it's hard to believe. I, I do. But that's what people of faith are. They're people of faith. They believe in God through his word. Same thing, it's hard to believe the gospel. It's not easy to believe the gospel, to believe that I'm so rotten that it took God himself to come down and die for me. I can't be that bad. I'm really, I clean up well. But it ta- it's hard to believe the gospel, that I'm not smart enough to get there, or I'm not moral enough to earn a place before God. It's hard to believe. But that's what the passage is teaching us. To believe in the words that God has given to us, that he will deliver, he will lead. I'm thankful that even in Ahaz's failure, God still comes to rescue the faith of the people of God. Look with me in 14. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall not eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be destroyed. Or be deserted. Now, what is he talking about here? This is a verse you always hear at Christmas. Does it, is it speaking about Jesus? Well, I think, yes, it is. Absolutely. Matthew tells us that. But is there any immediate purpose to this verse? I mean, did, did Isaiah kind of declare that? And everybody wonder, what's that about? Well, I think there's definitely an immediate fulfillment. I think there's an immediate fulfillment for this time. Now, I don't believe that there have been two full incarnations. There haven't been two virgin births. I don't believe in Scripture. I believe this is, a, this is a, a part of prophecy. When you see in the Old Testament predictive prophecy, you see in the Old Testament, you see shadows, but the substance in the New Testament. You see partial in the Old Testament. You see full and complete in the New Testament. So, for example, the whole sacrificial system, it was pointing to what? It was pointing to one that would come and die for our sins. Obviously, John the Baptist seeing Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. He is what the sacrificial, the sacrificial system was pointing to. So the lambs were never the thing. It was the lambs were a sign pointing to the thing or Jesus. So in this case, what's happened in Isaiah's day? Well, I believe there was a virgin who got married, had a child. This child was an ordinary child. It wasn't a Christ child, <clears throat> ordinary child, and they named the child Emmanuel. And he becomes a time marker. So when this child got to the age of five or six, or that age of discerning good and evil, Syria and Samaria were blotted out. <clears throat> Everybody would have known the faithfulness of God. God said, when this child Emmanuel gets to the age of discernment, those two countries, you won't need to fear them anymore. They're gone. 
So it's a time marker that God gave to show his faithfulness to the people of Israel, to show his faithfulness to preserve a remnant. Now, is that the only fulfillment? Well, of course not. Remember now, the signs and the symbols of the Old Testament, <clears throat> it's like the temple, the brick and mortar of a temple, is what? It's replaced by the church in the New Testament. We are living stones. So Matthew, if you remember in chapter 1, writes this in 23 to 25, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, what I'm saying is that the prophecy, as it was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, was pointing to something greater. And Matthew saw that. Matthew looks back, and Jesus was the true miracle, born of a virgin without any male intervention. It's the miracle that we've been waiting for. God is now with us. Jesus, in Matthew 1, is showing the completion of Isaiah that God is totally faithful. We can never doubt God. God has revealed his faithfulness in bringing Christ, God with us, God now dwelling among us. So God is totally believable and trustworthy because of the Son. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. So God is totally faithful. He's believable. You can believe him. You can rest in him. Whenever crisis comes into your world, you can run to Christ because he is God with us. God is not against us. God is not just alongside of us. God is with us and for us in every way. So what do we do with this story? We see Ahaz failing in faith, God upholding, strengthening, and calling for faith. Even when, Isaiah, even when Ahaz fails, he continues on. So what do we do with this? Well, let me just give you a couple points of application, maybe, of how we live in crises as Christians. Okay, number one, I would say to you, number one, that in crises, the Christian lives seeking a divine perspective. A divine perspective. Let me, see, let me show you how it relates to this. We must gain, when we are in crises and trial, we must gain a divine perspective. Let me explain that. If you remember last week in Isaiah 6, 1 to 3, you see the Lord high and lifted up. We saw this sovereign, mighty, powerful God. In chapter 7, in chapter 7 we see God exercise that sovereignty in the ways of men. He, he, he crushes kings. These two firebrands, that's how God relates them. They're just firebrands, they're just burning stumps. That on God's side, when God is with us, we don't fear the enemy. We don't fear threats like that. Or if you go, if you're to read verses 17 to the end of the chapter and into 8, God's going to call Assyria and he's going to call Egypt and there's going to be a colossal battle and the land's going to be desolate. And when he calls them, he says, I call Assyria the bees, and I call Egypt the flies. In other words, when God relates to the superpowers of the world, they're insects to him. They're nothing to him. I mean, we have to gain that perspective. This God with us is a God that looks at superpowers as insects. When God wants to display his power, what does he use? He brings a child. He, he shows the glory of his power through the weakness of a child. 
That's why in chapter 2, we've already covered this, but he says, stop regarding men in whose nostrils is just breath. Don't regard them. Don't fear them. Have faith in God. Turn to God. He will care for you. All right, think about Isaiah 40. We'll get to this in a number of weeks. He writes these words. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. He blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Folks, we need a massive reorientation as to who God is. He sits above the heavens. They're grasshoppers. So we fear men. Why do we regard men in whose nose is breath? I mean, we, we live, yet we're so consumed and distracted by what we see, hear, and feel that we take what we know, the character of God, and we've set it to the side. Jim Elliott wrote these words. He says, He is God who regards kings and princes as very small factors in the affairs that concern his work. Now, obviously, there's temporal danger in this world. But the divine perspective looks at life not just as in this life, but as in all of life, both now and eternity. So so check yourself on how you view God. Is this your view of God? If it is not your view of God, you will turn to men in crises. If this is your view of God, you will begin to move with a greater greater speed toward the character of God because only he can save, only he can deliver. Okay, secondly, the, the Christian in crises is to live according to the promises of God in the scriptures. We're to live according to the promises of God, that God has given us all these promises. In other words, our obedience as Christians is not fueled from fear of judgment or fear of hell. Our motivation to live as Christians according to the, is because of the promises of God. God has promised us many, many things. He is now trustworthy as revealed in Christ. So, for example, uh, you're encountering financial struggle, and the temptation is to cheat or maybe to cut corners. I'm not going to give, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe... Be sly about my taxes. No, no, no. The Christian says, no, God has promised me. I don't need to worry about what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink, what I'm going to wear. My Heavenly Father knows I need these things. I'm going to rest in Him. This is what it means to believe in the fatherhood of God, that He will care for us. We're not going to make schemes of our own doing to get out of problems. We're going to look to the Word of God, find the promise, and then rest in that promise. Or if you are tempted to build an identity on a career or on a family. We're saying, no, 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 you're in union with Christ. God has promised you that you are one with Christ. That's my identity. That's what I want to cultivate. Because the person who wants to build their identity in a career or a family, then everything goes to serving that end, and that is not the right end. Our end is to glorify God. Or perhaps if you struggle with sin in your life, and you're, many people say, well, I can't be forgiven. And they fall into despair over the nature of their sin. No, we go to the word and we we rest in the promises that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. So living by faith is living according to the promises of God. See, the nature in the book of Isaiah, sin is not your garden variety, lust, anger, bitterness, adultery. Sin in Isaiah is you don't trust God. 
You're not trusting in him. You're not trusting in his promises, in his words. In fact, you know, and Habakkuk brings this up clearly, all the prophets do, that we're called to live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is what makes us distinct. It's not the clothing we wear. It's not the rules we follow. Many of the rules of Christianity or the instructions of Christianity are found in other religions. It's not the diet that you keep. What defines and and makes us different from the entire world is that we are a people of faith. That's why even Paul picks that up in Romans 1.17. The righteous will live by faith, faith in the gospel. Habakkuk says the righteous will live by faith. This is what he also says in chapter 3. Habakkuk, by the way, was a prophet who was about to, he was asking God three questions about why they're suffering so much. And, And God was bringing the Chaldeans down on the people of Israel, and he couldn't understand it. But, but when God revealed himself to Habakkuk, here's what he said in the end of the third chapter. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor a fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's, folks, that's death right there. That's terrible. Nothing, nothing good right now is happening. He says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So in crises, we are people that find ourselves being drawn to God. If you are counseling or encouraging one another in crises, you're pushing them to God. You're encouraging them to the faithfulness of God, to hold on the promises, to believe. In fact, just what Charles Spurgeon wrote about the promises, it's, it's very, um, yeah, it's challenging, but, but let me read it to you. He says, Beloved friends, let us never look upon our own unbelief as an excusable infirmity. But let us always regard it as a sin, and as a great sin too. Whatever excuse you may at any time make for others, and I pray you to make excuses for them whenever you can rightly do so. Never make any for yourself. In that case, be swift to condemn. It's a very easy thing for us to get into a desponding state of heart and to mistrust the promises and faithfulness of God, and yet all the while to look upon ourselves as the subjects of a disease which we cannot help and even to claim pity at the hands of our fellow men, and to think that they should condole with us and, and try to cheer us. It will be far wiser for each of us to feel this unbelief of mine is a great wrong in the sight of God. He has never given me any occasion for it, and I'm doing him a cruel injustice by thus doubting him. I must not idly sit down and say, this has come upon me like a fever or a paralysis which I cannot help. But I must rather say this is a great sin in which I must no longer indulge. But I must confess my sin of unbelief with shame and self-abasement to think that there should be in me this evil heart of unbelief. Now, we all struggle like the man in Mark 7 when Jesus says, Do you believe? Can I heal your son? And he says, Yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. There are those times, clearly, that we struggle with faith and, un, you know, faith and disbelief, belief and disbelief. But we're, we're looking at it. When I, the reason I quoted Spurgeon because we want to look at it as this is not a position to land in. This is not a position to be in. As soon as I'm here and I identify the position as disbelief, I want to repent and move back to faith. God, your promises are greater than the situation I'm in. And, and the last thing I would say regarding uh, facing crises, so we're, we're trying to get a, a sovereign perspective. We're going to live by the promises of God in the midst of crises. And then, and then, well, two more. Uh, one would be that the Christian in crises sees the trial as a reminder of the final judgment. 
In other words, folks, we are to see the crises that we enter as just these initial pangs of what's going to ultimately come. Now, the Christian is saved from judgment. We've passed from judgment to life through faith in Christ. But there's still reminders to us of what will ultimately occur one day. This is a sobering word. This is a sobering book. In fact, in Luke 13, when Jesus was ministering to his disciples, they had questions about these type of crises and these unanswerable conflicts and and tragedies that happened. He says, there were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So there was a massacre that occurred. No explanation for it. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, it's tragedy. We don't understand it. People suffered in the tragedy. They must have been worse than the others who didn't suffer. And Jesus says, no, no. I tell you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So Jesus doesn't give an answer to it. But he says, don't miss the marker. That's a form of judgment. And so you want to be reconciled with God. He says in verse 4, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? In other words, some tower just gave way, crushed 18 people? Well, God must have had it out for them. He says, no. You know, I tell you, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. So these crises that were given, we want to steward them. We want to to be reminded that those are just faint indicators of what is coming and to move to faith, and particularly for the non-Christian here. The non-Christian here, you're going to face the same tragedies and hardships in life, and you can try to white-knuckle through them. You can try to, but, but I'm saying to you that those are acts of grace of God to remind you that there is a great judgment coming, that, that if you are relying on yourself or if you're relying on men, if you're relying on women, you will not stand firm at all in that day. Unless you stand firm in faith, You won't stand at all. And so I would encourage the non-Christian here to consider these things, that these crises are faint reminders of what's coming. It's the same reason why your body is aging. Your hair is graying. It's moving you in that direction. So if you have questions, please come up after the service. These These are good, they're clear, and they're sobering warnings. Last thing I would say to the Christian here in facing crisis is not just a divine perspective, not just to live according to the promises of God, not just to look at them as kind of portents of the final judgment, but they cause you to look to Christ. They cause you to look to Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, the whole thing is driving us to see that in Christ, God is for us. That if you're in suffering, Christ is not against you. He's with you. He's for us. Jesus suffered in every way through temptation, and yet he didn't sin. He understands temptation. He understands suffering. Nobody suffered like the Savior. As you're suffering, he is with you in that. Or in ministry, if ministry is a challenge for you. It's interesting that when Jesus sent out the disciples, and he said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. And what's he say? And lo, I'll be what? I'll be with you. Emmanuel is with us in the hardship of ministries. Or if you're, if you're struggling with the sin of your life, Jesus is with us in the sin. He has taken our sin. He's eaten our sin. He's, he's drunk the full dregs of God's wrath and fury against our sin. So he has totally forgiven you. Even facing death, it says in Hebrews 2.9 that, that he tasted death for everyone. 
Even facing death, Jesus is with us. Not just that, but even go beyond the pale of death. In Revelation 21, we have this glorious picture of heaven, and we read these words. He says, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's Emmanuel. It says, He will dwell with them, and they will be with They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is Emmanuel, that we, in the midst of crisis, we always look to Christ, because Christ is with us in every context, up to, including death, and beyond death. He will be with us in every way. So let us rejoice. Let's take a a moment and uh, pray. David will close us. I want to ask you to pray in light of this word, to pray briefly, to pray loudly so that we can join with you, and to pray corporately that we might live in light of this, this crisis. All of us are going to face crises. If you don't face it, you will have a friend that does. And uh, we will want to be those who walk by faith, who encourage others to walk by faith. So I'll open us, and then uh, you can pray, and then David will close us. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Christ, Emmanuel, who is with us even now as we seek your face, even as we don't know how to pray that he intercedes for us. He gives us his spirit that that groans for us. Father, lead us in our prayer that we might be people of faith displaying your glory.